you have a Bible, you might want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In his book, This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom, Martin Heglin speaks of the deep meaning he finds in returning every summer to his native Sweden. He teaches comparative literature at Yale, but he likes to go back and forth between the continents. And, and one of the things that Heglin says is so important in this experience is knowing that the place he returns to will one day no longer be. Indeed, Heglin argues if we are to grow up, we must embrace that everything will be lost in the end. For then and only then will we be free to value what we have here and now, rather than live in some kind of projection or denial. As he summarizes his philosophy, life can matter only in light of death. The Corinthian Christians could sympathize with Hegland. For as Paul states in 1512, he has come to learn that a number of the Corinthians do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so in chapter 15, what Paul is going to do is Paul is going to disabuse the Corinthians of this notion. To do so, what he's going to do is he's going to rehearse where the idea of the resurrection comes from. And for Paul, he says, the resurrection comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where the idea comes from. And in doing this, in rehearsing this claim of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul is going to make three statements about the resurrection of Jesus, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. And conveniently, they all can be summarized with an R. All right, so here's what, what we're going to do this morning. Paul says three things about the resurrection of Jesus. First, he says the resurrection of Jesus is required. It's required. In other words, it's essential to the Christian faith. It's not a tack-on belief. Secondly, he's going to say the resurrection of Jesus is real. This is real history. This is a public fact. And then thirdly, he says the resurrection of Jesus is revolutionary. It's revolutionary. It's completely upending. So that's what we're going to take a look at this morning. First, Paul says the resurrection of Jesus is required. This is verses 1 to 5. The resurrection of Jesus is required. I don't like the word required, but it was an R. It kind of worked, you know. It could be requisite. That was another thought. But it basically, it's indispensable. It's indispensable to the Christian faith. So Paul begins by reminding them that the message he proclaimed from the start involved the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says, Now I'd remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, or Cephas, and then to the twelve. So Paul starts off here in this section by reminding them of the gospel that he preached. And in many ways, this is really what Paul does throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. You know, Paul has tackled, this is the fifth of five subjects he tackles. The first subject, chapters 1 to 4, is the divisions in the church based on celebrityism. And to handle that, Paul takes them back to the gospel and says, our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. It's he and he alone that is the center of our faith. Then he deals with sexual misconduct in chapters 5 to 7. And, and Paul says, listen, if we believe in the resurrection of our bodies, our bodies matter. What we do with them matters. It matters to God. Then he deals with food, sacrifice to local gods in chapters 8 to 10. And Paul says, listen, whether you eat or you don't eat, there's one governing principle. God has shown us his love in Jesus Christ, and we need to act in a way that is loving towards others. That is the fundamental principle by which you decide whether to eat or not eat. Will it be loving towards the other? 
And then finally, as we've been looking in chapters 11 and 14, with disorderly conduct, they were, they were fighting to get their voice heard. People are being rude to one another. And Paul says, again, the gospel tells us that God loved us in Jesus Christ. Be loving towards one another as you gather together. So really, as Paul says, let me remind you of the gospel I preached. Paul's been doing it the entire book of 1 Corinthians. And what this reminds us is, is the entire Christian life really is about going back to the gospel. The gospel is not the ABCs of salvation, it's the A to Z of salvation. The gospel is what sustains the Christian life. It's the gateway into the Christian life. It's what keeps us going in the Christian life. It's what's going to bring us home at the end of the day. And so Paul brings his readers back to the gospel. And I like that on our church website, if you go there, you'll see this phrase, we are a gospel-centered church rooted in historic Christianity, seeking to practice the way of Jesus together. You know, this is such an important thing. If you're not a Christian, we're going to talk about the gospel this morning, and you're in a good place because you're going to find out what is the core belief that Christians have that they believe is so life-changing, so transformative, so world-shattering. Paul says we need to get back to the gospel, Corinthians. And then he says that the gospel is of first importance. For I delivered to you of first importance what I received. I delivered what I received, and it's of first importance. This phrase of first importance has both a temporal and a logical sense. It's temporal. It's a temporal thing. Um, he's saying, I handed off what I received. And this word, it's very technical. When the Corinthians would have heard this language, they would have known that Paul is using technical language about passing on something that is a tradition, something that's very cherished, it's very valuable. It's like finding some, you know, some, some ancient golden crown in some tomb, and then you're just holding that thing so carefully. You want to make sure that you don't drop it. You want to make sure it's intact. You want to make sure that it goes where it is meant to go. Paul says it's of first importance. And then he has uh, this little um, formula here. I handed off what I received, and he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and the twelve. Now, the reason I broke it up like that so you could see that is because New Testament scholars know that this is an early creed. This is an early creed. We know that because he uses the word, he doesn't say Peter, okay, Cephas is Peter, it's in Aramaic, okay, so Paul is actually using words that he never uses. He's actually using Aramaic terms, he's actually using a certain kind of rhythm, you can see it there in the grammatical breakdown. This is an early creed. And in fact, we know this is one of two dozen creeds that are interwoven into the text of the New Testament. What is a creed? A creed is a very concise distillation of what Christians believe. And, and, and these were important, especially because in the first century, not everybody could read or write. So one of the ways you would pass on the faith is you would give a creedal formula, something that was memorable, something that you could, you could teach a child, something you could teach an adult, and everyone would have it. Now, when did Paul receive this creed? Because he says, I passed on what I received. And this is where nerdy people like me, and I'm going to nerd out a little bit, we get excited. Because we know that that even the most, even the most crazy, liberal, uh, non-Christian scholars will say this is arguably one of the very earliest expressions of the Christian faith. It comes within a year to six months of the crucifixion of Jesus. In other words, if you want to know what it looked like for early Christians to share their faith, they didn't go through the Romans road. The book of Romans wasn't written. 
okay? Paul hadn't, you know, had his Damascus Road experience and converted yet so that he could write the book of Romans later. It wasn't the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John comes much later. It looked like this. It was a proclamation about what God had done in Jesus Christ. I, I kind of get the shivers. I'm nerdy. I like history. I like seeing... This is like pretty much as rock bottom as we can get of what was coming out of the mouths of the first Christians. As rock bottom as we can get. In fact, we know that some... This is a little commercial. We know that some of this actually gets incorporated into the Apostles' Creed in the second article. And I'm going to do a whole series in October on Tuesday nights. Commercial right now. All right? On the Apostles' Creed. And you need to come find out why that creed's important. People say, well, well creeds aren't... Creeds aren't biblical. Creeds are biblical. They're in the Bible, <laughs> okay? Uh, they're part of the Bible. So creeds are important uh, ways of passing on the faith. And Paul himself thought of creeds as very important, and he passes a creed on to the Corinthians. So this is an early creed. Paul guarded this sacred message. It was a treasure, and he wanted to hand it on. And Paul's point is, I'm not making up the gospel, you know? Uh, if you go to Galatians chapter 1, verse 16 to 19, you see, where does Paul get this? Paul... Uh, you know, he tells us he, he had his conversion a couple years after the crucifixion. He's on the road to Damascus to chase down and stamp out Christianity. Has his conversion, goes off into the desert for three years. There's lots of conjecture of what he's doing there. He's trying to figure out, going through all the scriptures. Can it be? Is Jesus the Messiah? Yes, he is. He's putting it all. It's like someone that's kind of had a complete worldview revolution and has to go back and rethink everything. Then it tells us that he goes to Jerusalem. He confers with Peter and James. This is how I'm understanding the gospel. Is that what we, uh, yep, that's what we, yep, that's what we, and, okay. And James, when you saw him and he was raised, what did he look like? And, P and Peter, what did you see? Yep, that's what I saw too. So Paul is telling us that he's passing on something that he received from Peter and James and was conferred and that this is the same message that's been preached from the beginning, the gospel. It's of first importance. So it's temporally of first importance. It comes first in time, but it's also logically of first importance, okay? It's, it's logically of first importance. What do you mean by that? It's the bare bones. It's the necessary ingredient. Ingredient. Now, if you say, hey, Cavola, you call me up. Hey, Cavola, I'm hungry. I don't know what to make for dinner. I'll pick on Rick Rupp. Rick says, hey, I'm hungry. I don't know what to make for dinner. I'm Rick. You should make some breaded chicken. I'm sorry, Rick, this one's not going to go good for you. <laughs> and, and then Rick says, okay, he calls me up a little bit later. I give him the, the ingredients, the instructions. He says, something's wrong with this breaded chicken. And I start going down the list. Well, did you use the eggs? Yeah. Did you get the salt? Yeah. The breadcrumbs? Yeah. The lemon wedges? People forget the lemon wedges. No, I got that too. Hmm. All right, 350 degrees, half hour, not working? No. Wait, Rick. No, no, Rick's a smart guy. He went, well, Rick. Did you get the chicken? <laughs> oh, the chicken. Yeah, the chicken, Rick. That is the essential ingredient in breaded chicken, okay? <laughs> if you don't have the chicken, you don't have breaded chicken. You have something weird, something else. It's logically necessary, okay? The gospel is not just warm, happy thoughts about God and Jesus and stuff. The gospel has a content, See, Christianity has a content. It has certain fundamental, essential ingredients without which you do not have Christianity. And Paul here gives us this content, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried. He was really dead. They were good at that back then. Crucifixion, kind of tough one to survive. And that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and the Twelve. 
So let's sit with this for a second because basically this is what it's all about, people, right here. And if this is not true, we are wasting our time. Paul's going to say that later on, okay? But this is what it's all about. This is where the church stands or falls, right here. So let's sit with this for a second. What is the gospel? And let's reflect. First observation, what is the gospel about? It's about Jesus Christ. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. You see, if you understand the gospel is about Jesus Christ, it begins exposing what false gospels look like. And false gospels, by the way, are not always pernicious. Oftentimes, they're very good things. Personal peace is a good thing. Social justice is a good thing. Respecting the environment is a good thing. Coming to terms with your finitude and your dependency as a creaturely thing, that's a good thing. Racial reconciliation, a good thing. Knowing there's a higher power to help you through addiction, those are good things. But here's the deal, you guys. Those are not the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. And the gospel is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's about something that God did in and through Jesus Christ. Now, you can believe that Jesus was a great moral teacher. Jesus was a great moral teacher. I don't know if there's more, a more brilliant, astounding ethical vision than the Sermon on the Mount. You can believe that about Jesus and not have the gospel. You can believe that Jesus was a phenomenal prophet, and Jesus was a prophet. Jesus announced to people what God thought, what God had to say. Jesus was the prophet of all prophets. You can believe Jesus is a great prophet and not have the gospel. Now, listen to me carefully. You can even believe that Jesus was God and not have the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, Paul says right here what the gospel is. The gospel is about something God has done for us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, a lot of times you can also have part of the gospel. See, we like to stop at the first line, that Christ died for our sins according to the gospel. That's part of the gospel, but that is not the whole gospel. Dallas Willard used to call this the gospel of sin management. Jesus came just to take care of your sin problem, now go do whatever, right? That's not the gospel. That's part of the gospel, but a half-truth, when it's treated as a whole truth, is an untruth. So the gospel is not about sin management. You see, the resurrection is critical for the gospel, and that's Paul's point. That's where he's getting to. See, the gospel is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus according to the scriptures. Now, this little phrase, which is said twice, according to the scriptures, this is really important. Let's say that, you know, you're hanging out with your friends, and they say, hey, man, that guy that, that's running 7-Eleven, Joe Schmo, you know him? Yeah. You know, he died. Oh, man, it's terrible. Yeah, he got got killed in a robbery. Terrible. I saw him take his body away. He was riddled in bullets. It went bad. Mm. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah. I saw the ambulance, saw the whole thing, you know. Yeah. yeah. A bunch of people were there. And then Joe Schmo starts showing up around the neighborhood. One day you're in Denny's, and Joe Schmo walks in, and he's got the bullet wounds. And you sit down, and you have a Grand Slam breakfast together, you and Joe Schmo. And he keeps doing this for, for a number of weeks. He just, you know, sometimes there's big groups, small groups. Joe Schmoe's is there. He's at the party. He's, he's in the neighborhood. People are creepy, weird. Joe Schmoe's here. He died. We saw him die. He was dead. What happened? Went to the funeral. Well, what would you make of that? You'd be like, well, that's just weird. It's just a weird thing. See, it's not just that Jesus of Nazareth died and was raised. It's that Jesus 
was a certain person who claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ. He claimed to be the personal embodiment of Israel. He took on 12 disciples to mimic 12 tribes. He said, I am the true vine, which was a title for Israel. And then he came and he fulfilled the law in a way that Israel never could fulfill it perfectly. He didn't only claim to be the embodiment of Israel. He claimed to be the embodiment of Israel's God. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus Jesus himself looked over Jerusalem and said, how often have I wanted to take you in my arms, Jerusalem? He's speaking like he's God. You see, the reason they killed Jesus is because he made himself out equal with God. So he comes and he claims to be fulfilling man's side of the deal, Israel's side of the deal of fulfilling the law, and he claims to be doing it as God. In other words, he's the God-man who comes to fulfill what we could never do on our own. This is the Jesus who came and said, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the one who was raised. I am the resurrection and life, and anyone who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Wolfhart Pannenberg, German theologian, says this. I I love that picture of Wolfhart. That guy just looks like a German theologian, right? (laughs) Seriously, I would not want to get in an argument with that guy. He says, the resurrection of Jesus acquires such decisive meaning, not because someone or anyone has been raised from the dead, but because it is Jesus of Nazareth, whose crucifixion was instigated because he had blasphemed against God. If this man has been raised from the dead, then the God of Israel, allegedly blasphemed by Jesus, has clearly committed himself to him. The resurrection can only be understood as the divine vindication of the man whom the Jews have rejected as a blasphemer. So Jesus comes and he dies according to the scripture. And that's a nice way of saying this. Not that Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 53 or a handful of proof texts, but that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the very centerpiece of the scriptures. It's the fulfillment of all the promises. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the hinge point of the sweeping biblical narrative. It is the key that unlocks the entire Bible. And if you're reading the Bible and you're trying to get rid and extract the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you're not going to understand it because it is according to the scriptures. All the scriptures point to what Jesus did. There's this awesome passage in Luke 24 where the resurrected Jesus starts walking alongside two disciples who are bummed because the Messiah died. And then people are saying that he's raised. And they don't understand it, and they're trying to understand it. And it says, it says this, And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained uh, to, to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. There's an M missing. Don't let it distract you. It's distracting me. Jesus, what he does is he goes through all of the scriptures, and he shows how they all point to himself. Jesus Christ died. His death, burial, and resurrection was according to the scriptures. So the creed Paul quotes says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, really dead. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then it adds this fourth line, and that he was seen by Cephas and the 12. Now, why, in the, why is that in there? He was seen by Cephas and the 12. Why is this important? Well, this leads us to our second point. See, Paul, from this, this spot on in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11, starting with verse 5 and then moving forth to verse 8, he starts driving home the point that this really happened. This really happened. This isn't just a theological truth. This isn't just a nice part of the story that makes the rest of the story make sense. This is something that really happened. 
This is a public fact. This is something that happened, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, in space and time. People witnessed it. Now, this is where a lot of churches, I'm going to use, I I don't like using this word because it's kind of a catchword, but if you go to a lot of liberal churches, okay, uh, oftentimes they have no problem talking about the resurrection of Jesus, but they want to, and I'm going to use another, a big word, demythologize the resurrection. What does it mean to demythologize? Well, it means that you say, well, we're modern people. We can't believe what those silly people, back in the first century, they thought dead people just popped back up all the time, right? They didn't know dead people stayed dead, but we're modern. We figured that out. We know amino acids don't rekindle because we're so smart. So we don't want to throw out the resurrection, but it's just a nice idea. It's a, it's a, it's a nice hope. And so if you go to a church that demythologizes, that pulls out the miraculous out of the Bible, you'll, you'll hear sermons like this, typically on an Easter Sunday. Life is hard. Life is difficult. We all have difficulties. But there's hope. Because the idea of the resurrection of Jesus tells us that though it's winter, spring is coming. And behind every cloud is a silver lining See, what are we giving now? We're giving philosophy. We're giving wonderful, warm aphorisms. But Paul, if he was in the audience, he would say, no way, no way, that's not what happened. This is fact. This is history. This really happened. This is not just wishful thinking or nice ideas to help us get through a rough time. Can you hear what Paul is saying here? He appeared to Cephas in the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, and sisters were probably there, and he doesn't even include them. So we're probably talking 1,000, 1,500 people, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. I love that. Then he appears to James and the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also two years after those appearances on the Damascus Road. Now, here's something we need to realize. Paul is a scholar, a top-notch scholar. We know that. You don't need to be a Christian to believe that. You just need to read the New Testament. Follow his careful arguments. That is established across the board. Liberals, conservatives, we all know Paul was a brilliant scholar of his day. And what Paul is doing here when he has this kind of litany here, Paul is showing us his footnotes. Paul is showing us his footnotes. Richard Bauckham, who um, taught at Cambridge for a number of years, says, these are scholarly footnotes in the ancient period. And so Paul is saying, it's important that you realize that this really happened. You can fact check me. Now, Paul is writing this roughly 20 years after the resurrection. We had 9-11 just come by, 18 years. Uh, How many of you were alive during 9-11? Okay. All right, recent history. It's recent history, okay? It's roughly about the equivalent of when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians and talking about the resurrection. Now, if you met some young whippersnapper who wasn't really around for 9-11, okay, an 18-year-old, you're like, eh, I don't know. I've heard that 9-11 was a hoax. Airplanes flying into buildings. That just sounds a little too convenient. What would you say to him? You'd say, are you crazy? I saw it. Get on the airplane. Go to New York. Talk to the people who lost their loved ones. This happened. See, it'd kind of make you a little bit like, seriously? See, this is what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, these people are still alive. You can fact check this. This really happened. He appeared. 
he showed up in different, with different groups. And, and, and Paul here has three different groups. There's different sizes. There's the 12, there's the apostles, maybe 70, and then there's this massive, massive group. And there's three different groups, and they represent three different sizes. I think Paul's just giving us a representation of all the different groups and people that the resurrected Christ showed up to. There's this great passage, Acts 26, where Paul is sitting in front of Agrippa. He's before Agrippa, and he begins sharing why he's doing what he's doing, and he gets to the part where he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And Agrippa goes, whoa, 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 Paul, Paul. He says, your great learning has driven you mad. See, even Agrippa knew this guy is bright. Your great learning has driven you mad. Resurrection and then Paul turns to Festus, who is there also. Festus is the one who's overseeing Judea. Festus was in charge when the resurrection of Jesus happened, and he was hearing the reports all the time. And Paul says this, the king here knows these things. And so I'm speaking to him boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things escaped his notice. They weren't done in a corner. Do you see what Paul's saying? Paul's a little bit irate. And Paul's turning, he's turning to Festus saying, Festus, you know, time to fess up, Festus. You know, this happened, okay? So is Paul right? Is it history? Is it history? Okay, we got an amen, I like that. You know, this is an incredible time to be in resurrection studies because if you would have asked this question during the middle of the 20th century, there would have been this common idea that, well, it was a lot of hopeful thinking that the disciples had, and over years, the legend kind of encrusted till it became this idea that Jesus raised from the dead. But today, as a result of, of, of modern research and scholarship, even the harshest critics will tell us that we have eyewitness accounts that bring us within six months, six months of the resurrection. You see, this idea that there's some kind of legend, that's no longer there. Now, uh, I'm actually going to do a podcast with Hugh Ross on Thursday. You still coming, Hugh? Okay. In case you didn't know, your secretary had you doing a podcast with me on Thursday. Hugh and I are going to talk about the resurrection on that podcast. You can get that. We're going to go into more of the, the weeds on that. But I owe it to you to let you know that there is solid historical reasons to believe in the resurrection. There are certain agreed-upon facts that scholars from across the continuum and, and, and when I say this, I mean, like, oh, I remember when, when I went to a state university and I, and I took a Koine Greek class, and my professor was not a Christian. And I remember she, she, we were studying the book of Philippians in the Koine Greek, and she said, you know, do you mind if I just light up a little bit? And she was, like, smoking a cigarette, you know, blowing it out the window while we were talking about I counted all joy, brothers. It was, it was a moment, okay? So just a little FYI, not everybody that studies the Bible is super keen on Christianity, okay? There's a, if you go to a lot of schools, there are people that are atheists who are New Testament scholars. But across the board, across the board, there's certain facts that everybody agrees to. And here's, I'm just going to give you three of them. There's more. We'll probably cover more. Number one, Jesus' tomb was discovered empty. The burial account of Jesus is recognized as one of the most historically reliable traditions that we have about Jesus of Nazareth. Scholars across the continuum are united in the judgment that Jesus was buried in a tomb by members of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, in the early afternoon, and the tomb was discovered empty. Um, and this is important. You know, if the tomb wasn't empty, this thing never would have got off the ground. Just go get the body, right? Just, just, just go get the body. 
If you're claiming that, if you're claiming that he's raised, when they've got the body, they pull it up. John A.T. Robert, Robbins, Robinson at Cambridge University says, the burial in the empty tomb is one of the best attested facts about Jesus of Nazareth. Another fact, uncontested, Jesus' post-mortem appearances. Nobody, nobody is denying that these occurred. Paul says that on separate occasions, individuals and groups believe they experienced something that they interpreted to be as the risen Christ, and this is agreed upon across the board. Scholars agree that there's strong historical evidence that the disciples did indeed have these post-mortem appearances. Garrett Ludeman, another Swede, I guess, I've seen a lot of umlauts in my notes, says this, it's historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Third thing that is agreed upon. <clears throat> Third thing. The disciples' belief in the resurrection of Jesus has no precedence. Has no precedence. Where did they even get this idea that Jesus rose from the dead? See, back, to, gosh, a hundred years ago, there was this idea, it must have been, they must have got that from some other religion. And so the history of religion school went and rifled through history looking for some kind of way in which we could say, well, Christianity got this from, you know, some kind of dying and rising God tradition. And you know what? That's completely given up. That project is no longer viable within scholarship. There are no ways of connecting it, mostly because the dying and rising God is really about crops and stuff like that. And, and resurrection is a very, very different idea. Maybe it was Jewish influences. You know, in the Old Testament, um, we see several passages, Ezekiel 37, Isaiah 26, Daniel 12, 2, that talk about resurrection. But, and, and the idea of a corporate resurrection at the end of time in which everyone would stand before God was common in Jesus' day. The Pharisees defended this idea and Jesus sides with the Pharisees. But here's the important thing. They couldn't imagine not everybody but an individual being raised and not at the end of time, but in the middle of time. It was beyond their scope. And then there's just simply the way in which there was this worldview flip where we have large numbers of people flipping on an instant. Flipping, completely flipping. You know, and people that study the history of thought know worldviews take long times to develop. You know, we live in a secular age right now where belief in God is one option among, among many, but 500 years ago, everyone believed in God. It took about 500 years to get here. That's the way worldviews work, not through telephones. So these uncontested facts point to the resurrection of Jesus as the best possible explanation. And there are counter explanations. Uh, we'll probably hit some of these uh, in the podcast, but you know, Jesus swooned, apparently he was dead. He looked like he was dead, but he wasn't. They were good at crucifixion. And not only that, but can you imagine like dragging some, you know, half alive Jesus, you know, he's bleeding. Like, he's Lord of the universe. Like, give me help. You know, they, they, you go through these kind of things, you know, the hallucination theory. Oh yeah, sure. Thousands of people in lots of different places all had the same hallucination. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but I don't think this happens. And actually it doesn't. So we can throw out these kind of things. <laughs> Conspiracy theories, right? They stole the body and they lied about it. This is one of the earliest theories, but here's the problem. These people were martyrs. You know, martyrs might not be right about what they believe, but one thing we know about martyrs is they believe what they believe. That's just part of the psychology of being a martyr. So really, there's no adequate way to deal with the historical material. And again, listen to the podcast, okay? Um, so what do you do if you're a skeptic? Well, all you can do today is simply acknowledge you don't have an adequate way of dealing 
with historical evidence. And why is that? Well, you have certain prior commitments. You have certain worldview pieces in place that, and, and the resurrection doesn't fit within prior philosophical commitments. But it's not a historical problem. And this leads us to our final point, and this is really connected to it. The reality is, is the reason why people reject the resurrection is because it has incredible revolutionary implications for our lives. See, if you embrace the resurrection of Jesus, you cannot remain the same person. You can't view history the same way. It gets to the core of how you view the world. It is a revolutionary, revolutionary event. It's completely upending. The, the, the resurrection of Jesus, see, if you understand the resurrection of Jesus, it just changes everything. And in fact, this is what fueled the expanse of Christianity. In his book, The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark, a sociologist at the University of Washington, tries to understand how did a tiny and obscure messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization within two centuries? How in the world did it do that? And he has four things that I, he has more, but four things I think are really interesting. One of them is this. Christians gave themselves sacrificially to each other. They nursed each other back to health. As Christianity spread, life expectancy spread. And one of the main ways it did this was when plagues hit, and plagues would hit back then, one of the things you'd find is all the pagans would flee the city where everyone's dying, and then the Christians would move in and they'd nurse the sick. And some of them would die, but you know what? They thought, well, if we die, it doesn't matter. We get another body. We rise again. So it made this, Christianity spread through hospice because they believed in the power of, they really believed it. And so they weren't afraid. And, and what would happen once the, once the, the, basically with each plague, what would happen is the pagans would flee. The poor pagans that were left behind were at the mercy of Christians who were praying and loving them. And they'd convert. And then there was another city flipped for Jesus, and another city, and another city, because they believed in the resurrection. Martyrdom. Under persecution, Christians did not try to, to get back. They didn't say, we're starting a, a holy war now. You've taken on us, we're taking on you. You know, here we go. Christians were fearless in the face of martyrdom. In fact, when they had another Christian that was going to be martyred, they go visit them in jail and bring them food and care for them, even at the risk of their own lives. Their faith in the resurrection made them able to do this. And as pagan neighbors saw the way they dealt with martyrdom, they were shocked because death was the ultimate card that any political power could hold. Diversity. The Pax Romana opened up the cities. And as it opened up the cities, for the first time, you had no boundaries. And so cities started filling with, in the Roman Empire with all kinds of diversity that people were trying to live together who had never had to live together before. And when Christians came to believe in the resurrection, they believed Jesus has risen. He's the first sign of the age to come. In the age to come, every tribe, tongue, nation will be together, singing in unity. And Christians had a vision, a vision for diversity, and it was the crisis that the Roman Empire was facing. And then finally, the Roman Empire was a nice place to be if you were male and you were a Roman citizen, but it was built on the backs of the poor and the marginalized. The poor and the marginalized who didn't teach comparative literature at Ivy League schools and didn't have summers in Scandinavia to embrace and memorize the forest and all of its beauty. 
No, they were enslaved. They were in hardship. Their life was not going to be good. And what do you tell those people? Just enter into the existential moment of the finitude of your life. Or did they go about, as they went preaching, and said, I've got news for you. After winter comes spring. (laughs) Here's three helpful tips to help you as you deal with your oppression and slavery that'll make your life a successful life. If it wasn't the resurrection, it wouldn't have spread like wildfire. It gave hope to those who had no hope. And what do you say to the hopeless? What do you say to those who can't cram enough meaning into a life that is short or cut short or filled with some kind of debilitating disease? What kind of hope do you have then? Embrace your finitude? That philosophy is not going to work. The resurrection was good news to those who needed it. And this is why Paul mentions finally his own story. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God with me. You know, Paul mentions three groups. Paul also mentions three individuals, Peter, James, and John. Quite a collection. Why does Paul mention them? Well, he mentions them because they're apostles, but he also mentions them because look at where they came from. You know, James, James's, Jesus' entire family thought he was off his rocker. We learn in Mark that the family came to remove him because they thought he'd lost it. He thinks he's the Messiah. This is our, my brother. I don't know how many of you would have trouble believing your older brother is the Messiah, much less God. James certainly had a problem with it. He was a skeptic, but then we learn that the resurrected Christ appeared to James and James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem and he died a martyr's death. Take Peter. Peter, another failed Messiah. We know during that time there were several failed Messiahs, another failed Messiah. Peter goes back to fishing, you know, but before that happens, some little girl points out, you were with Jesus. Oh no, no little girl. I wasn't with Jesus. Oh no. (laughs) Only, Only a little while later, this is a man standing up in front of thousands declaring boldly that he has seen the resurrected Lord. How do you explain that? And then you take Paul. What's Paul doing? Paul is off to kill Christians. He's so convinced that this stuff is heresy and a lie that he's willing to put his life on the line and he completely flips and goes from being a persecutor to one that is willing to be persecuted and even dies also a martyr's death. All three of those guys died martyr's death because they couldn't deny what they had seen. They had seen the resurrected Lord. But in Paul at the end, he says, listen, it's true. It's true. Resurrection is central to Christianity. It's a necessary ingredient. It's true. It really happened. It's a fact. But Paul says, but I want you to catch something here. At its core, the resurrection is grace. It's grace. Paul starts getting so moved here at the end. By the grace of God, I am what I am, that he would he would die and be raised for me by the grace of God. And I want to ask you, do you know that he died and he was raised for you? Do you know that? It's the miracle that every single one of us needs. My dad has, my dad has these big stubby fingers. His hand has all kinds of age marks. He's in his 80s. I like to look at his hands. I want to photograph him sometime. 
And I just noticed my hands are starting to look a little bit like his. <laughs> Hold your hand up in front of your face. You know, that hand in front of your face, that hand is going to need a miracle someday. It's going to need resurrection. Our whole body is going to need resurrection. Our whole body is going to need new life. Every single one of us needs a miracle because every single one of us is growing older, is wearing out. Statistics are pretty good. One out of one die. And the, and the resurrection bears witness to the grace of God that he has a plan and a hope for us. That because of Jesus Christ's great defeat of sin and death, we will be raised back up again. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet entirely appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The resurrection is God's great rescue operation. God came in the person of Jesus Christ, and he dove deep down into sin, deep down into death, till he got to the very bowels of death, and there he exploded in life, and he has broke the power of death, and every single one of us here who's attached to Jesus Christ and knows him will be a part of that great resurrection movement. That is good news. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. You're not getting it anywhere else. I am the resurrection life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I want to ask you, is that your hope? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Is his death your hope for your sins being dealt with is his resurrection, your hope for life? Or are you trying to cram all the meaning you can into birth to death? Good luck. Good luck with that project. This is just the beginning, you guys. This is just the beginning.